So first of all, the title of this episode is going to be Instrumental Variables, colon, a love story. <laughs> so that's one thing. Welcome back to Serious Epidemiology, a podcast from the Society for Epidemiologic Research. I am Matt Fox from Boston University, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host and friend, Dr. Haley Bannock from the University of Buffalo. Welcome back, Haley. Hey, Matt. How are you? Well, I'm doing well, but I got a question for you. I hear mm. that you are going to make the transition from a PC to a Mac. Is this right? This is right, and I am super excited because, as I was saying a minute ago, um, my PC sounds like a rocket ship all the time, and it goes vroom, and the fans are always running, so I'm excited for a quieter work experience. I think that's actually a, a sign that it's working. That's that's what they sold me, a PC slash rocket ship? Yeah, I mean, if you can't <laughs> fly your computer, what's the point? <laughs> I mean, what is the point? So uh, my question is, are you going to jump like headfirst into the entire Mac cult? Or are you just like dipping your toe into the Mac world? I'm dipping my toe and I am excited for all of the features, but I'm a pretty basic computer user. So I, I, I don't know. I have lots of other Apple products and I'm excited mostly for things to be synced across all of them. Um, that's what I'm, I'm looking forward to. Yeah, I have to admit, I, I use almost all Mac products and I don't sync them across anything. I don't, I have no idea why that's some great advantage, but hey, you know, if it works for you. Well, I don't know if it works for me, so I'm just thinking it hopefully will work for me, but it's more, you know, if you want to read an email on your Outlook on your iPad and you want to text something from your computer using iMessage, you can like cross-platform in a way that, that I can't with my PC right now, so we'll I see. I don't know that that's true, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to allow that. I'm going to let that okay. stand for the record. So we are not here today to talk about Macs and PCs. We are, in fact, here to talk about quasi-experimental designs, which is something that I have to admit is, is something that I take a real keen interest in and yet probably don't understand it well enough to be able to speak coherently on it. And that is why I am thrilled that today we have Dr. Tariq Ben-Marnia here to talk us through it. So for those of you who don't know, Tariq is an associate professor at the uh, University of California, San Diego. Uh, he did his PhD jointly at the University of Montreal and Paris Sud. I am, don't actually know how you do a, a, a PhD across multiple u universities, but that's pretty cool. And then before doing his PhD, and I thought this was really interesting, he was an environmental scientist working on contaminated soil with the French railway company, which to me, it just sounds absolutely fascinating. It's always fun to know that people have lives before they came into academia. And then before that, he was doing a, a postdoc at McGill, which I believe is where you and you and Haley met. Is that correct? Yep. Yes, we did. Yeah, we both were working with Jay Kaufman at the time. And we won't hold that against you guys at all. <laughs> But uh, welcome. Well, you are outnumbered right now, so you can't hold it against us. Yeah, but but we're not in the same room, so I can say anything I want because you, you guys can't hurt me. <laughs> so welcome, welcome to the welcome to the podcast, Tariq. Great to have you. Yeah. Hi, Matt. Hi, Hedy. Hi. So uh, before we we get into the really important stuff of quasi experimental designs, we want to get to the 
important stuff of life outside of quasi-experimental designs. So we've got a few questions for you so our audience can get to know you a bit. First thing is, can you tell us something that you think most of our listeners would not know about you? Yeah, I, so I guess non-professional things. <laughs> I think the most kind of unknown thing about is my past as a kind of metal musician. I was playing in many kind of heavy and progressive metal bands and it was my past life. I'm not doing that anymore. Wow. I have so many questions now. <laughs> like starting yeah. with what was what was the name of the, the last band you were in? When I was in Paris before to, to move to Montreal, I was playing in a band called Backward Glance. But by saying that I should yeah, I, I should stop because then it's Googleable and I don't want that to happen. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, so can you delete it fast? No, unfortunately, I I forgot how to, to delete that kind of thing. So that that uh... you're so mild mannered. I cannot believe you were in a metal band. I was I was just playing the guitar, and I was I was just. Yeah. <laughs> I, was just I love screaming. that. Yeah. And this was this was just a metal, but this was not a hair metal band. You did not have the long hair and the. Uh oh, you did. Oh, didn't you, you did. <laughs> but that's yeah. Every, like, was young. <laughs> Are there any photographs anywhere available? No, that, no, oh. it's impossible. Don't even try to Google that. It's just. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can you tell us what's what's the last novel that you read and what did you think of it? So the last novel I read actually is um, it's called it's a French book called uh, King Kong Theory by Virginie Despentes, and it's a very very interesting book. It's very kind of, it's 200 pages or something. It's very quick to read. And it's about some kind of very kind of interesting feminist perspective. And uh, I really liked it. It's my my partner recommended that to me. And I really loved it. King Kong Theory. Fantastic. And then last question. What is the, what would you say is the most interesting place you've ever traveled to? It it depends what you mean by interesting, but probably spontaneously, I would, I would say India. I think India is very interesting. Mm -hmm. And it kind of includes a lot of ways of interesting, what interesting can mean. So India, I would say, is very, very interesting. This did you have a Did you have a favorite place in India? Yeah, I loved Dharamsala, actually, mm-hmm. in the northeast. I really love this, pla- this place. Yeah, really beautiful. Really beautiful. All right. Well, that was very <laughs> helpful, I think, for our audience to get to know you a little better and for us to get to know you a little better. But uh, we did ask you here to talk about quasi-experimental design, so I suppose <laughs> we should we should switch over to that. And as we frequently say on this program, we, we assume that our audience has a bit of a, a methods background, but just to give us the big picture, when you think about or talk about quasi-experimental designs, what goes in your universe of quasi-experimental designs? So there are many, many ways to approach that, define that, and you will find as many definitions at papers that are giving tutorials about that. But to me, just like a kind of broad ways, any type of method that is in which we're going to capitalize on a natural experiment, and we can talk about that later, on which you're going to exploit some kind of setting in a given like uh, treatment, in a given policy, whatever that you're going to try to capitalize and find some kind of a source of exogeneity and, uh, and try to exploit something that you're going to use to, for an ident- specific identification. So to me, a way to approach like quasi-experimental designs or method in general is just whatever way you find to exploit something that you can consider as a natural experiment and uh, includes 
just in general, like uh, to me, two types of quasi-experimental methods and two types of natural experiment are the one based on timing, like diff in diff, difference in differences, synthetic control method, etc. And the quasi-experimental method based on some kind of uh, instrumental variables, including regression discontinuity, which is a, like a specific subgroup of that. So I think this is just like how I would very broadly approach quasi-experimental designs or methods. Okay, so so you said that essentially you're trying to, in these kind of designs, exploit some kind of endogeneity, exogeneity or endogeneity? Ex, exo. Exo, yeah, genating. So, so, so these are these are terms that I feel like we don't use nearly as much in in epidemiology, and and I have to admit I get confused every time these words are used. Well, the epi equivalent would would be some like try to find a situation that for which you can assume independence between like this specific setting and a treatment group like assignment and uh, and the outcome of course. So the the idea is just to try to find a situation like a specific setting, a specific timing or whatever that you can assume to be totally independent of the kind of treatment assignment process, procedure. And you can, by doing that, try to mimic what we we can call randomization. So that's kind of finding a way to try to approach as much as you can randomization by some, like some kind of you know, background knowledge and assumptions made on how like the specific assignment to this treatment group will, will happen, will occur. So, Terry, an exogenous variable, I guess trying to translate it into some more familiar terms for epi, would be a variable that in a DAG has no arrows going into it. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And conversely, an endogenous variable does have arrows going into it. And we don't, yeah, and we don't want that. Yeah, yeah. so you're looking for a variable that if, if you can create a, a DAG in your mind or on paper where there is no arrow going into it, into a node, into a variable, that would be an exogenous variable. Yeah. And that's probably for, maybe we can talk about that later, but it's a kind of, uh, there are many interesting papers and discussion about how to kind of uh, combine these quasi-experimental designs, methods in relation to DAGs, directed acyclic graphs. And that's actually very uh, interesting because it forces us to think about this, like what we mean by these specific variables. And for example, I can talk about a project I'm doing right now with a very good colleague from uh, from LA, from UCLA, Rock Nyanogo. And where, because we need, we are doing simulations. So when we do this simulation, we need to think about the structure and what we want to do in the context of diff synthetic control, synthetic control methods. And and it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting work to try to link quasi-experimental methods and what they mean structurally with like a tool like DAX, for example. And so it seems like then the key point here, given given what both you and Haley have said, is that the ultimate variable with no arrows into it would, would actually be randomization. And so what we're looking for with quasi-experimental designs are ways that we mimic randomization that we have no control over. Yeah, exactly. And But as we don't manipulate that, we need to kind of make some like a very explicit assumption about make us thinking that this is plausible to do that and then to try to approach specific estimate of interest. So that's uh, that's a kind of the difference between like a traditional experimental setting and natural experiment when you have to make a lot of work to explicitly explain what makes you thinking that this is a plausible assumption. So that's where the quasi comes from, right? In the, in the quasi experiment. Yeah, but that's probably a, something we're going to talk a lot about, about this quasi, I think is valid. I think this is what it, it means in English. But it's kind of very vague and it's like prone to a lot of kind of interpretation. And sometimes I think it's used a lot as a label, you know, like it's quasi experimental. So that's we're almost there. It's 
almost very very good <laughs> but i think that it's very loose when you think about that so i think it's kind of i think it's a good appropriate term but i think sometimes it's used in a very kind of marketing way you know when you're just like up oh, don't worry about that this is cause experimental but i think this is uh this just and fair for for this set of methods but yeah that's there is the kind of labeling problem in this uh, kind of family of methods. That's that's interesting you say that because I have a lot of respect for people who use these methods because I think they're so intuitive and neat and just when you think through them it's such a great idea to exploit mm-hmm. something like a policy or or you know a natural disaster that has so many health impacts but it's really, really hard to do. And so in some ways, not that in any way conducting a trial is easy, but we have very specific ways in which we do trials and quasi-experimental designs are just more complicated in my mind to think through. So I don't, I know you're saying that you perceive the quasi to be sort of, oh, let's just dismiss it, it's just quasi. But in my mind, I think like, oh, it's quasi-experimental. That's really, uh, that's really neat. So yeah, I guess it's a difference of perspective. And it's a bit of both, actually. But uh, I mean, just because sometimes, to me, like the reason for which I was fascinated by this method is how you need a lot of imagination and creativity. And, and yeah. that's what, yeah. when I was exposed to that many years ago, that, wow, that's fascinating that you can try to find kind of situation and try to come up with some new ideas and a lot of like kind of uh, suggestions and uh, scenarios for falsification tests or sensitivity analysis uh, this is what i really love in this method because it's you it need a lot of imagination and you can find a lot of situation when you can try to like find a specific good identification strategy but at the same time you have yeah this kind of a lot of papers that just label we did that this quasi experimental method but and that's it. This is like the job is done. And uh, that's why, why I think that quasi is mi- a little bit misused. So you used a term there that I hear used a lot. And I think that for some people, it's a little bit challenging to know exactly what I mean. You said the identification strategy. Can you say a little bit more about what we mean when we talk about an identification strategy? Yeah, what, what at least I mean by ident- identification is just to kind of distinguish it from estimation, where you have this first step in which you're going to try to identify what you're targeting. What is, okay, what I'm trying to estimate? What is my estimate? Which is like, do I, am I interested by the, like the average treatment effect? Am I interested by just a treatment effect among a specific subgroup of the population? And that's also something we're probably going to talk about, which is some kind of, when you talk about local average treatment effect, which is leads to a lot of issues about generalizability and things like that, but that's probably for later. But then, yeah, identification to me is a step in which you think about like, structurally and you think about like alternative explanation that could have in relation to a correlation and association between two variables. And you're trying to think about that, about how can I identify that this specific correlation is most plausibly connected to a causal effect and how can I make this inference? And then the estimation will be the kind of what type of tools and techniques. Most of the time we use statistical techniques to try to get this specific estimator and, and then estimate. So we talked a bit about what is in the universe of quasi-experimental designs. So what would you say falls outside the realm of quasi-experimental designs? And I guess specifically I would ask, does pre-post design study fall into the category of a, of a quasi-experimental design? It's a, it's a spectrum because I, I see that a lot, for example, about propensity score methods, matching, mm-hmm. weighting, etc. To me, 
I don't see, as it is, as a method by itself, I don't see that as anything to do with quasi-experimental method. This is just one approach to kind of uh, deal with confounding, and you can deal with that with so many different ways, like stratification, matching, weighting. But I see that a lot, propensical matching, in some, even in some textbooks about quasi-experimental methods, that I don't, I would not qualify propensical methods as quasi-experimental in general. Then for before-after, I think it's a spectrum because before-after, if you have one time point before and one time point after, I would say, yeah, you can like kind of label that as a quasi-experimental method, but you kind of, the plausibility of the inference you're going to make will be extremely weak because the thing that uh, when you have this before-after that you are trying to exploit the timing, like of a given policy, for example, or treatment or whatever, you are going to infer that any difference that you observe between time one and time two is going to be attributable to the policy. So you need to have a lot of evidence to make sure that what you infer as a difference attributable to the policy directly is actually what's, what's happening. So I would say you can, but it will be a very, very hard job. So having more time points and having more control groups will just help you to make this as quasi-experimental as possible. So we've mentioned some of the things that go into this, this bucket of quasi-experimental designs. You talked a little bit about, you mentioned regression, discontinuity, instrumental variables, difference in differences. Can you give us sort of a, just a very brief explanation of what those three designs are? And if there are any others that are major designs that are used under this heading, you, know, you can throw those in as well. Yeah, sure. First, I can start with the difference in differences methods, where you're going to exploit the timing of a given intervention or given policy, and you're going to try to capitalize on trends before the specific timing of the intervention to try to build your counterfactual trajectory and try to use this counterfactual trajectory as you built using past observation to see what would have happened for the treated group in the absence of this treatment and going to make your inference based on that. And then you can use one group. So you need to find one very good group that has a parallel trend before and need to, but in practice, it's very rare. So that's why in, most of the time we use difference in differences with multiple groups in a context of, and we can use propensical methods such as IPTW, inverse probability of treatment weighting, for example, or propensical matching to try to build uh, uh, groups that will be as similar as possible regarding the specific trends. But then there was some extension of that based on a synthetic control method ID, where you're going to use a sim like a, intuitively, this is very similar to weighting when you're going to build a synthetic control group that will mimic the kind of trajectory of your treated group in the absence of the policy. So that's like the diff-in-diff family. Okay, so is, is synthetic controls just a, a form of difference in differences analysis? Yeah, it's an extension, yeah, a non-parametric extension of definitive. This is exactly, and it comes with exactly the same assumption. This is the same idea. And when you're doing definitives, you mentioned you can have multiple comparison yeah. groups, but with synthetic control method, you amalgamate those separate groups or, or can you still have multiple groups? No, you need multiple groups and with multiple observation with other groups. And the idea, I can give you an example if, uh, if you want about like the, one of the first papers using synthetic control methods in the context of a tobacco policy in California. So the idea is just like, okay, we have multiple smokers in California 
and we have multiple time points when we, we observe how much people are smoking, etc. And then we have 50 other states. So in a diff-in-diff traditional setting, we will need to find control state that will follow exactly the same trend in terms of smoking as California, like the individuals within California. So that's very hard to find in practice. The idea of the synthetic control approach is to say, okay, we don't we don't need to use one specific state only. We have these 50 states and we can identify within the states some individuals that will constitute a kind of synthetic California. So we're going to use some people from New Jersey, from New York, from Arizona, etc., to build a kind of synthetic California with the goal of having the same trend. And the idea and how we maximize, optimize these approaches is to identify this kind of synthetic California using like a patchwork of individuals in other states. So that's that's why in synthetic control we use multiple groups, but we kind of use to which extent these observations are going to mimic more or less the trajectory in a treated state or the treated control like a group of interest that's uh that's the intuition behind it wasn't there a song welcome to the synthetic california uh, yeah yeah very 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 good metal song um that could be our alternate <laughs> uh, title for the podcast welcome to the synthetic california <laughs> you know even just hearing you describe that synthetic california method it is so cool it is it's, it's such yeah. a cool idea and i can't say that i know who really developed these methods but it's just amazing that somebody you know thought of this concept and i i can see how conceptually it would be very difficult to think through all of the problems with actually creating synthetic california but it's just a really cool approach i I like it a lot that's what yeah what i said before this is what makes this method so interesting and actually this paper i mentioned about uh, like the tobacco policy in california is by abadi economists that made a very like a lot of very good um, very good work in this regard and uh but yeah it's um it's a very interesting set of uh of methods so then about your question matt about uh other type of method so we we talked about the definitive family that include to me at least extensions that include the synthetic control methods. And of course, like the example I gave was like the kind of traditional setting of synthetic control methods. In the last 10 years, every month there is a new paper about a new way to deal with synthetic control. And for example, like one very popular approach is called generalized synthetic control methods that is a little bit more flexible with time varying covariate. And just like when you have multiple treated groups, etc. It's a very active area of research right now in, in EPI, in econometrics, in psychology, etc. Then the other types of quasi-experimental methods design include instrumental variable family that includes the instrumental variable by itself and one specific subtype that we call the regression discontinuity and here the idea is to try to identify for the IV instrumental variable one variable that will be correlated or influencing the exposure of interest so you you need to assume that you have a heterological question of interest between an exposure x and an outcome y for example and you have a lot of measured confounders between x and y and a lot of eventually unmeasured confounders that you don't know by definition or you can't measure so the idea is to try to find another variable that doesn't have to do with all of this business between x and y in relation to this confounding but will be influencing x without having any influence, direct influence to Y and anything to do with the confounding variables that you you identified a priori, measured or not. And the idea is that you're going to exploit how this instrumental variable is going to make X, Y change. And you're going to exploit this specific change between IV and X, your exposure of interest, to try to interpolate what will be the specific variation of X due to this variation of IV that will have nothing to do with any confounding structure to try to see what happens for Y. 
So that's a kind of basic idea of the instrumental variable. And the regression discontinuity is a subtype of that because it's just when you have a situation in which you have some kind of potential discontinuity that can be plausibly thought as arbitrary just like that haven't has anything to do with the question of interest. And we can think about specific treatment rules, about if you have this above, if you above this specific age, if you above this specific systolic blood pressure or whatever uh, indicator, you're going to receive a specific treatment. If you have a number of CD4 counts, you're going to receive, or under a specific CD4 count, you're going to receive a specific treatment, etc. So that's the idea of the, of the regression discontinuity. And the idea that we have a specific number that we think to be arbitrary, and we're going to compare the observation just above and just below this threshold. And we're going to tr try to identify if there is a discontinuity. And based on a set of assumptions, we're going to be able to infer this discontinuity as the treatment effect. So when would you choose different diffs versus regression discontinuity? It's based on the type of setting that we can call a natural experiment that you're going to capitalize on. Diff and diff are when, by design, when you exploit the timing of a given intervention. So the fact that if this policy took place in 2005 in this specific day, we assume that it was, it's kind of a, like the specific date is random. And the fact that it took place in this specific state or area, this can be thought as random. And then actually, we can probably talk about the COVID because there is a lot of work in relation to COVID-19. We can probably talk about that. But that's what, in a situ in situ in situation in which we can like typically use definitive based on timing. Well, regression discontinuity is where you have the specific decision rules to assign like a specific treatment, for example, that is made on a number of values that we can think as arbitrary. Of course, there are also some papers trying to use time in a regression discontinuity setting, and it will be very similar to a definitive in this context. I've also seen, I think, some neat papers that use regression discontinuity in the context of natural disasters, you know, in terms of hurricanes, or there's one of my most favorite examples is talking about the 1998 ice storm that was in Quebec. And I've seen some neat work where the effect of this ice storm, which was a random date that occurred, that, that could exploit that kind of variation in the same way. So I, I find that as a helpful way to think about it. For some reason, I find it a bit easier to think it through in terms of natural disasters than in terms of treatment rules. But I guess it depends on just where your brain thinks. Yeah, it's both actually. And most like most of the work we do here in, in my group are about trying to develop, to apply this type of experimental method in the context of extreme weather events and try to understand like the specific uh, health impact associated with it and this spatial distribution and the typical examples that we have right now is wildfire that's a huge it's a huge problem right now and uh, yeah and we are developing this like extension of synthetic control method to try to identify what's what's happening for different set of health outcomes for example Haley can you say more about that because I don't totally follow the example that you gave so you used the ice storm as I, I think the determination of, of the variation but what what would be the outcome then that we're interested in so the paper I'm thinking of in particular, they were a cohort of, of pregnant women and they were being followed by their obstetricians throughout their pregnancy. And the outcome were um, infant-related outcomes. And they actually followed the kids. Last I heard was something like 12 years, 15 years to see if they had different outcomes than children born in areas at the same time that were not affected by the ice storm. So the exposure, I suppose, suppose would be in the pregnant woman and the outcome was in the child later on. Does that make sense? It does. But so in this case, are you actually interested in the effects of the ice storm? That is what they were interested in, you know. So uh, 
I wasn't living in Quebec at the time, but I understand um, it was a very severe storm. There were multiple days without power, no access to clean water or, um, you know, food supply, cold temperatures, mm. etc. So what was the combined effect of this really major stressor on women who were pregnant at the time? And what was the effect on their children? And they had looked at school outcomes and attention and, and all these different health associated characteristics to see if there was a difference there. So and actually you can it's a, it's a good example because you can do both actually like you, to answer your question not yeah you can be interested mm -hmm. by the average like the overall treatment which is a storm by itself or if you are actually your exposure of interest or your specific question of interest is about one potential like mechanism like uh, access to water or access to electricity or some kind of disruption in or stress maternal stress hormones exactly and that kind of stuff. you can also do that exploit a natural like a natural event a natural disaster to do that with a very interesting paper about the earthquake in chile about like access to water mm -hmm. and sanitation and try to use like this specific event to see how it kind of influenced this exposure among specific groups and to try to answer a question about which extent lack of access to water in an acute way because of such earthquake is associated with infectious diseases for example so you can do both and you can think to that as like a ITT versus a pair protocol. And you can just like try to, to be interested. And it's two different questions, I would say. And so my sense is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that these quasi-experimental methods are making their way into epidemiology, but that they are not used nearly as much as they might be used in other fields. Mm -hmm. I think of health policy as, as one where it's used more, and then if moving outside of the health field completely, economics seems to, to use these. Why is it that we as epidemiologists tend to shy away from these methods, not completely, but, but more so than other fields? I wish I, I had an answer about why it took so long <laughs> for that, but it's true that when you look at uh, in econometrics, for example, like in, um, in a training, like this is like the basic and it has been adopted in like in the last three, four decades. This is very, very common and this is a very, very common tool as, for example, in EPI would not imagine having a course where we don't talk about proportional hazard model, Cox models, and uh, that's you can't have an econ degree without talking about instrumental variables. I think this is some kind of uh, cultural, like cultural differences, but mm -hmm. I don't know why it like it started to be very, like implemented a lot in early 2000s in, in public health and in EPI. There was a lot of papers in 2005 to 10 about like a, a specific type of genetic instrumental variables that they called Mendelian randomization. There were a lot of papers about yeah. that and uh, a lot of discussions. There is a very important paper about instrumental variable by Hernan in 2006 about like, uh, yeah. what's the title? It's something about uh, epidemiologist dream or something like that. Uh, and uh, very, very, very interesting because IV is a good example, but because it's uh, it's kind of, it's, it's, it could be extremely powerful and we can make a lot of parallel with randomization. But at the same time, when you think deeply about the assumption, you're quickly disappointed. And uh, this is exactly what I went through in the last few years about IV, <laughs> and I can talk about that. But yes, why we don't have more quasi-experimental training and papers about that in EPI, in public health, I don't know. But it's true, as you said, in health services research, like it's kind of very, very common in uh, policy evaluation in general. Like in the last few years, there were many, many papers about like evaluating Medicare expansion, ACA, like Affordable Care Act uh, extension, mm -hmm. and all of this. There are a lot of papers using Defendif and trying to exploit this specific extension and which population are going to be eligible to this new program, etc. But then, yeah, I, I, but it's changing, I think. But it 
doesn't it really have to do with the substantive field? You know, there's an obvious reason why it's used so often in health policy, because, you know, there's this exogenous uh, variable policy or whatnot that, that you can exploit. When you think about, let's say, something like cancer epidemiology or obesity uh, epidemiology, I guess you can talk about Mendelian randomization for obesity, but, you know, there's there's fewer truly exogenous variables that you could think of or I maybe I just I haven't really thought that much about it in the same way that you know a policy really jumps out uh, in, uh, like but that. I think think about like in the context of regression discontinuity for example designs where you think about all of the clinical treatments that are based on a made-up cutoff about oh yeah yeah all, all of that are just like a perfect field for applying a regression discontinuity and in many many treatment many specific medication or recommendation for screening etc are based on this type of made up numbers that is are perfect to rely on regression discontinuity so for that i don't know why it didn't start earlier now you have more and more papers about that about like specific cutoff for hiv for example that like many papers about regression discontinuity but trying to capitalize on this uh, value of 200 uh, cd4 counts and try to make like to say why 200 and why not 199 why, why not 201 and try to exploit this specific choice and i think in medicine and in public health in general we have many many situations like that I would agree. I mean, I sort of fall somewhere in between here in that I think that part of it is that often we want to think about the effects of exposures that are unrelated to any kind of policy decision, and therefore that's part of it. But I also think a huge part of it is just training. I mean, I I had no training in any of these methods except for, I suppose, instrumental variables only were sort of touched on. And therefore it sort of gives the sense that these are not methods that epidemiologists think of as, you know, important uh, tools in the toolkit. So I I do think that's part of it. Make your best case for why epidemiologists should be using these methods. What are the big strengths for these methods? To me, the best argument, I would would say, just because they can be very useful and made on very different type of assumptions as compared to the traditional designs we use in epidemiology. And that's a good way, first of all, to kind of revisit some questions, to triangulate, just to see to which extent, by having different designs with very different assumptions, we come up with similar conclusions that also situation in which you can do some policy evaluation in general this is a very i think a very set of appropriate set of design for policy evaluation in general which is very important in the context of clinicals and also in practice most of the time it's relatively easy to implement i think most of the job is to think and know the policy and so at least it forces you to know the policy as compared to a lot of different techniques in which you can basically run a lot of different models without understanding what's happening here 80 percent of the job is to making sure to know what's happening and then you run very, very easy model most of the time. Sometimes it's a little bit tricky, but I would say that most of the job is to get what's happening, to understand what's happening. So I, would, I think that would be a good way to force people to spend a lot of time to think about the questions they're trying to answer. And I think that would be a good, a good argument in favor of thinking more about these designs, because just to spend as much time as possible about, okay, what type of question and is my question relevant? What is the implication of these specific estimates that I'm going to get? Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that because I do think that, you know, when these methods are taught, a lot of people's reaction is that it's neither either or. Either I go down the road of I'm trying to answer this question with a regression-based approach or I go the quasi-experimental, when in fact coming at this from different viewpoints, different methodologies, seems to me is going to really help us at figuring out whether or not we're getting valid estimates. Not that we can know for sure, but at least if the information is consistent across design, 
minds, it's helpful in terms of trying to ascribe causation. Mm -hmm. So you, you told us why we should want to use these methods. What are the concerns about using these methods? What are the things that we should be worried about making sure, you know, what are the big assumptions that go into them that we have to be really careful about in order to be able to get causal estimates out of these methods? Oh, yeah, that's that's a big list because then we call that's assumptions <laughs> that you need to rely on to make this type of inference using these methods. And for example, when you think about different difference methods, and this is the same for the extension of this type of methods that are we call synthetic control methods, which is just natural extension of difference in differences methods when you use multiple groups to try to build some kind of a synthetic groups that will kind of mimic the kind of trajectory of your treated group in a counterfactual world in with a policy or whatever treatment didn't happen. But the diff-in-diff and synthetic, synthetic control method, for example, are based on two main assumptions. The first one is like the parallel trend assumption, and I, I can explain that later, and another one that we typically call the common shock assumption. And that's the common shock assumption is just basically saying that you need to make sure that when the treatment happens, if you have a policy, for example, taking place in a given at a given time, at a given, in a given year, to make sure that it was only po like the single policy that was implemented and nothing else happened, which is a little bit intuitively similar to the concept, like concept of consistency that we use a lot in epidemiology as an identification assumption. And then it also you also need to make sure that like there were no changes in the trend of the outcome in a control group that you're going to use. But then the other trend, like parallel trend assumption, is very important because because this is what will be the kind of core of the estimation and the kind of inference you're going to make. Because basically you need to assume you, you need to find like a control group that will follow the same trend in terms of the outcome, like a parallel trend. So you're going to exploit the fact that you have two trends that are parallel, and then you're going to try to use this systematic difference that remains stable in, with time to try to see if when you have the policy, if a change happened, you can infer that as the policy effect. But this is a very, very strong assumption because you need everything that you, all of the difference that you will observe after this specific policy time, this is what you're going to infer as a policy effect. That's very tricky. So that's what I mentioned before, but the before after, like the more information before the policy you have, the better your inference will be. Because the more you, you understand what happened before, the more you can represent what will be a good counterfactual trajectory for your question of interest. And giving, for example, seasonality is very important in this context, because if you want, if your policy took place in January, you really need a lot of Januarys in the past to understand what mm -hmm. is a typical January in the two groups. If you don't, you, you won't show that if your policy taking place in January of a given year, and if there is a change, if all of this change will be the policy effect or the January effect. So this is the kind of mm -hmm. assumption that comes with this type of method based on timing, which is like the definitive family. And then the other family of approaches like instrumental variables. And that's very powerful when you think about like the idea of an instrumental variable, but assumptions are so strong. And one that is very typical is the exclusion criterion. When you have to think about an instrumental variable that will be linked to your exposure of interest without having any other link to your outcome of interest, that is so hard to find in practice. And this is a quick love story with instrumental variables because when I discovered them, <laughs> I was like, wow, that is so cool. You can just find a variable like that, such as, I don't know, a distance to a specific border, etc. And then you can just, yeah, do a two-stage least square regression. That's easy to do. And then, you, yeah, and that's uh, that's great. But then for, the more I was working with that, the more I was 
wait a minute. And I did a lot of work on air pollution, air pollution and health using instrumental variables. And for example, for air pollution, we use a lot of uh, instrumental variables such as uh, wind, wind patterns, wind direction, etc. But it's impossible to find a good instrument that will only influence one pollutant. That never, never happens. Yeah. Anyway, so that's IV, I think is very interesting because conceptually it's very powerful, but in practice, really need to, to think deeply about to which extent this is plausible. And that's why I mentioned before, all of that comes with a lot of kind of creativity for the falsification test. I think this is the key. So first of all, the title of this episode is going to be Instrumental Variables, colon, a love story. <laughs> so that's one thing. Okay, so these, these methods seem to me to be really clever ways to get at cause and effect, assuming that, as you say, we've met the assumptions that are necessary. Of course, that is true for regression-based approaches as well. We have to meet the assumptions in order to be able to get at cause and effect. So that doesn't seem to me a, a major difference. You could argue, I suppose, that that in some cases the assumptions are harder to justify and that'll just depend on the specific scenario. But I'm curious to know what these quasi-experimental methods are actually measuring and whether the effects that we're measuring are the same as what we would get if we had gone the regression-based approaches. Are they estimating the same thing or are they estimating something different? It depends. <laughs> it will depend on... <laughs> that, that's my answer. No, it will... Okay. <laughs> uh, thanks for being on the show. <laughs> Great to have you. Really appreciate you coming on. So I, I would say it depends on them. So let's say if we compare quasi-experimental methods to like traditional epi approaches, most of the time, actually, the kind of technique, like the kind of uh, estimation techniques would be very similar. Basically, a regression. We can use a regression for all of that. Where I mentioned I, uh, instrumental variable. This is just two distinct regression models. Same thing about regression, like regression discontinuity. You can just use a t-test if you want, but you can also use a regression that will be more flexible if it's non-linear, etc. So same thing for diffindiff. Uh, you you use like a typically a regression model and you're going to use a specific interaction between two specific fixed effects to try to identify your specific definitive estimator. But that being said, the, the, I think the main difference is, for example, when you're going to do uh, implement a regression discontinuity, for example, the idea, as we mentioned before, is that you're going to exploit like this specific arbitrary choice, like uh, surrounding this specific value. So you're going to estimate the difference between, you know, like in relation to a specific outcome of interest between between two groups that are very localized. So for example, if we talk about the CD4 count example about HIV mm -hmm. treatment, we're going to compare this outcome among a vase, like within a specific subgroup of the population. So this is what we talk about the local average treatment effect. And that won't necessarily represent what will be the average treatment effect in all of the potential CD4 count distribution. So that's, I think, could be a main difference because you can have a different design in which the question will be the same. What's the effect of this specific treatment, HIV treatment on survival, for example, but you will be interested by an inference at the, like for the entire population, I'm going to estimate the 80 average treatment effect. So that's the first difference. Another difference that I think could be, we can take an example about the diff It will be by design estimating the effect among the treated because what we're interested by is what is the effect of this policy among people that receive the treatment. And when you start building this type of synthetic, group, synthetic control groups and like using multiple, multiple <coughs> control groups, you're not estimating an average treatment effect among everyone and, and having this kind of uh, potential permutation. You are just focusing on what happened in this treated group. So I think in terms of the estimate, this is the main difference between like this quasi-experimental method and other approaches. But again, even when in, for example, in a traditional epi setting, you are using proper score matching and you're just going to restrict your sample 
to people that you were able to match. This is, yeah, you also restrict your, like, your inference to one subgroup of the population. So sometimes it can coincide. But that's like the kind of main point is that this is a very important thing to think about and about what is the estimate of interest and to think, to make sure this is what you want and to make sure that your conclusion, when you're going to write a paper about that, that we just want just like uh, overstating about what is like the on which population you're making this inference. I think that's very important. Okay, so so not to make this all about me, but since you brought up the, the CD4 count example, I, I actually have been involved in some of that work using regression discontinuity to try to estimate the impact of these CD4 count thresholds for anyone who's not familiar with this. The idea being that, at least in the a long time ago, we used to ration HIV treatment by limiting it to those who had low CD4 counts. And typically in the in the very, very early days was we would only treat those who had a CD4 count below 200. And so what you're saying is, you know, essentially what I'm doing is saying, well, somebody with a CD4 count of, of 10 is not the same as somebody with a CD4 count of 500. But it's pretty reasonable to say that if my CD4 count is 199 versus 201, probably all for all intents and purposes, um, you know, roughly the same. It's just that I didn't meet the criteria for treatment if I'm at 201 and I do if I'm at 199. My question, though, is am I estimating, and, and as you point out, that's I'm estimating something very locally. I'm estimating the difference sort of at the threshold, not the difference between the 500 and the and the 50. But am I estimating the impact of the policy of limiting treatment to those below a CD4 count of 200? Or am I actually estimating the effect of the treatment itself? I think that comes down to what Tariq was saying earlier with the ice storm example. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. Tariq, but you can estimate the effect of the exogenous source being that cut point of 200, or you can estimate the effect of the exposure that you're interested in on the outcome. Is that correct? So it again comes down to which question are you interested? You could probably answer both, but but for your example, that makes sense. Yeah, makes sense to me. Okay, so I could do I could do either in those cases. I still have to say, I mean, I, I have a little trouble wrapping my my mind around what it means to be estimating the effect only at that threshold. You know, can I say anything about people who are not close to the threshold, or am I really limited to be able to say what's the difference? What's what's the effect of setting that threshold at two hundred for those who were very close to two hundred? When you apply your regression discontinuity, this is because you want to make these two groups treated and untreated as similar as possible so you're going to like estimate a potential difference among this very like selected subgroups because this is what you're interested by you want to make like you want to infer if this specific treatment based on this specific assignment rule made a difference that would not have have happened if the, like the threshold was different or if this policy or this specific type of treatment was not implemented at all so then the thing is that as soon as we start to compare people with a cd450 and people with a cd4 of 1000 it won't be possible anymore and that's for a million of reasons because they are different for so many things in relation to survival for example so you would yeah you would estimate a local average treatment effect with other design as well in this context because of this very strong confounding mm -hmm. but that's uh, just something that at least i think in a regression discontinuity design is very explicit and clear and so you so you mentioned that regression discontinuity is essentially a form of instrumental variable something that i knew but i have to admit that i always forget that so does this idea of this local average effect that you're talking about, does that relate in any way to in instrumental variables when we talk about complier average causal effects? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and actually, sometimes I can give, give an example about what's one thing that we do in relation to wildfire, for example. 
and uh, if I have enough time, I just will be very quick. Because, for example, this is it can be sometimes it's a problem because you want what like when you're going to use an IV as an approach, you're going to just capitalize on a variation of your exposure that is strictly due to your IV of interest. But sometimes it's problematic because it will be a very small variation or like a very like a variation that won't be representative of all of the distribution of your exposure of interest if it's continuous, for example. But sometimes it could be the question of interest, and this is what for example, we were trying to answer in terms of wildfire smoke. So just quickly, wildfire smoke is considered by fine particles, PM2.5, that are known to be extremely harmful for many, many reasons. But there is PM2.5 coming from many different sources, traffic, industries, agriculture, and wildfire and smoke. So one question we had is to which extent wildfire smoke, PM2.5, had like responsible of specific type of hospitalization. So to do that, which we, we use a set of instrumental variable, not only one instrumental variable, but a kind of combination of that, including like winds, including the direction of the fire and a specific angle, and, and a specific change like a, in a kind of atmospheric composition using satellite images and in order to like to try to isolate as much as we can the specific variability on a specific day of pm 2.5 that we will be sure to be attributable to a wildfire and smoke and the smoke and by doing that it's a kind of very local 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 average treatment effect but this is the one that we care about because we want to see exactly what's happening when pm 2.5 is coming from a specific type of source which is a wildfire smoke and by using this kind of of weakness kind of of instrumental variable we're able to answer the question that we cared about about what is the specific toxicity of wildfire smoke through pm 2.5 i think that's a that's a really great example and that really helps solidify it in my mind i think you've given us a, a lot to think about one one last question i want to ask you before we go is my sense is from seeing some people talk about some of these methods particularly instrumental variables folks that i've seen like economists it, it involves as you say it involves a lot of creativity coming up with these you know particularly instruments and some people think of them as their their like their children they have these instruments that they just think are so creative that they just love them. Do you have a, a favorite uh, instrument or a favorite uh, method? <laughs> no, but I love... You love all, all the children equally. <laughs> yeah, kind of. But what I love most... Everyone says that, but we all know it's not true. Yeah, we have a favorite. But I, I kind of I, I kind of like the falsification step. This is my favorite part. When we, do, we design this type of study, this is, okay, how... Can I come up with a lot of scenarios that will just help my inference? And this is, to me, the most creative part, and this is what I love, really. Just trying to find sometimes very stupid scenario, but just it will help to make the inference of interest about, like, imagine, oh, let's say it was implemented at a different date, but, like, in a very different population, or so just in one subgroup of the population, that doesn't make any sense. But all of that is just to use a lot of kind of different type of evidence to help the inference of interest. But the falsification or sensitivity analysis or placebo test, whatever we name it, I think this, this this is my favorite step. Fantastic. I will tell you one of my favorites. Not, it's not a step, but it's an actual instrument or regression discontinuity. I'm not even sure. It was the example that I saw not that long ago in which they used birth month to try and estimate the impact on diagnosis of ADHD because kids who are born in September are a year younger when they go into school than kid, or almost a year younger than kids who are born in August, if I have that right. Do I have that right? It depends where. So It depends on where, yeah. right. But and they, and they show that the difference between being born in August and September in terms of a diagnosis of ADHD is substantial. And the only difference, you know, is a few days on either side, but because they end up being the youngest in their class versus the oldest in their class, those behavioral differences get interpreted very differently. So that's one I always really liked. 
I also have a favorite one that a colleague at McGill <laughs> used in her doctoral thesis, which is a few years back, I guess now, they implemented or they rolled out the HPV vaccine. <laughs> and there was a lot of worry, I suppose, among parents that this was going to make their children become more sexually active, that they felt like they would be protected somehow or at not at risk because they had this vaccine. So she used very neat provincial data from different health units looking before and after this policy was implemented to look at changes in sexual behaviors among teenagers and also the incidence of genital warts among teenagers. And what did they find? They found that there was no effect on sexual behaviors, that the vaccine did not cause teenagers to become promiscuous. You know, so that was an important piece of, of epi that was actually, you know, it got picked up by a lot of major news organizations because people were skeptical that this vaccine should be used in teenagers. And, and her research really was very important, in my opinion, to get rid of that, that argument. Really interesting. Well, I found this really enlightening, Tariq. Thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thanks to you. Well, for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, I strongly recommend the you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting and it also gets you access to the SER library where you can find some really excellent learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. As always, we do want to plug our sister podcast, Casual Inference from the American Journal of Epidemiology. We love that podcast and if you like this one, we think you'll very much like that one as well. We really appreciate you listening and we hope you will look out for our next episode next month.